As we tee off again on another episode of Swing Thoughts, it's great to have you here, Golf Spiritual Leader, along with my longtime podcast partner and dear, dear friend. Uh, one of those people that you're like, is he really that nice? He is. He is that nice. It's Tim O'Connor. I'll tell you what, he's nicer than, you, than me. Way nicer. Okay, Please man. stop. No, seriously. Like, I think I'm okay, but then I hang around with you and I'm like, I can't even see the level of, I don't know, just, uh, you're just a good guy. You, you, know? Just, you, you know, you're just feeding like an old belief system from childhood. I've thought I had gotten over it with my therapist, but you're just, you're just sending me right back into it. Well, I don't know what the hell that means. What you, you're you're in therapy for being too nice, or thought of as being too nice? Let's move on. Okay, I, I take it all back. Dark. You're you're a sad case. Um, we're going to get to our uh, guest in a second, but first, let's uh, take a second and talk about. JW Apparel, you're looking good in some. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm gonna guess that's uh, zero. No, that's uh, B. What is that? B B Dratty or uh, strikes you out. Fairway and green. There you go. Looking good, man. Very form fitting. Not too light. Just perfect. It's pretty, you know, it's very impressive stuff. JWApparelInc.com. Speaking of impressive, the all-new Stealth Carbon Wood by TaylorMade. If you're not using it and the guys that you play with are, they have an advantage. Better energy transfer, more ball speed. Some people are talking about two, three, and four miles an hour increase, which for the average person, uh, depending on your smash factor, you're going to hit it 10 to 12 yards further. To learn more about the latest TaylorMade products, Visit TaylorMadeGolf.ca And, of course, our good friends at NeuroPeak Pro. Precision breathing, that's what it's all about. You can join stars like Jordan Spieth, Bryson DeChambeau, and Charles Aloysius Fitzsimmons. And uh, learn more about NeuroPeak at NeuroPeakPro.com. A sponsor spot here. Uh, actual words I heard spoken last week as playing with a guy at Blue Springs and he's demoing the stealth driver and in the midst of our round he said you know what I'm going to buy this thing because instead of having a 7 iron in on this hole I have a wedge come on real yes I, I didn't write it down but I remember exactly what he said he that's goes, crazy speed man he goes I'm just getting so much more out of this you know, I, I, it used to be people would, you'd hit a shot kind of, you know, maybe it didn't feel absolutely perfect. And then you'd think, wow, you know, that worked out well because of the twist face technology. That was a big buzzword with TaylorMade. And they've taken that and they've, they've applied it to this carbon wood. But I hit several drives recently where I'm like, someone went, oh, good, good shot. I'm like, not really. I said, but that was all technology. <laughs> that was just, I could just feel it. It was like not quite on the face of the club. Um, I'll our, take it. Yeah, exactly. I'll take it. You can, you can buy better yardage. Uh, TaylorMadeGolf.ca. <laughs> um, our good friend, friend of the show, I don't know how many appearances this is, but uh, he needs very little uh, introduction. He is, I think, the current Canadian Mid-Am champion. Are you not? You are correct. And ranked uh, somewhere in the top 1,500 as an amateur on planet Earth. He is uh, from Eclipse Performance, our uh, our dear friend and uh, my better ball partner, Charles Fitzsimmons. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, we're still doing that, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're signed up. Yeah, we're all and, signed and up. Aren't you the newly minted Ontario match play? Jeff? Right. I am. I yes. am. Congrats. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a good summer so far this year. And uh, all of that's actually got my world ranking up in the top 1000 now. Which Come is on. And uh, trying to get up a little bit higher so I can maybe sneak into some some U.S. events. But uh, no, it's uh, it's been a good year so far. And uh Really excited for the Canadian Mid-Am later this year, which is at Thornhill. So getting to, to, to defend my championship at my home course that I grew up as a kid. So yeah, it's, I was going to say that. Really exciting. Well, I want to talk quickly. I have story, Tim. Um, what you just said about... What were you saying about... Uh, it's been a good summer. Uh, man, man, oh, yeah. What is, the, what is the number? I think you told me this. But what is the number of your world ranking as an amateur that would get you into uh, some other tournaments. So two questions. What's that number, and what tournaments would that get you into? Depends whether we're talking AM or mid-AM. 
Um, I'm focusing more on the mid-AM side just because that's what I can get into kind of closest. So the biggest one is the U.S. mid-AM. Um, you have to be a top 40 player in the world for mid-AM, so over 25 as of the age, as of the cutoff date, yeah, I yeah. think it's July 20th. Um, that works out to be about uh, a world ranking somewhere in the low 500s of, of all amateurs. So, yeah, I think I'm somewhere in the 700s right now. Um, and so I've got one more tournament before that cutoff, which is the Ontario AM next week. Uh, so I've got to play well in that to hopefully try and get that up high enough to the point where I get an exemption in there. I think I'm somewhere in the top 60 in the world for mid-ams right now. So wow, got to try and keep pushing that up a little bit higher. But uh, yeah, and, and you know, anywhere in the top 1,000, you open up some, some different events. But top 500, top 400, top 300 is where you really start opening up the bigger events. Yeah. Uh, does it intimidate you that your better ball partner is formerly the 26th ranked senior in Ontario? Is that a lot to take in? Is that I uh, I, I struggle every moment that we're together to. Uh, oh, I know. I, I know. I've seen it. I've seen it. You know, it's funny. I've got to, I just thought of something weird, Tim, that in the last month I've had the unique experience of rooming with both of you. Uh, Tim and I, uh, we had a, a better ball. We had a two-man event uh, a couple weeks ago at Saugeen, which was an awesome experience. But mm-hmm. I got to room with Timmy. And then uh, Charlie and I spent a couple days together at the, uh, what was it, the early bird we spent there? The early bird, yeah. yeah. <laughs> St. Thomas well, and Horse who, Stanley. Who falls asleep faster, me or Sir Charles? Uh, I told I told the story last week. I've never Tim is the only guy other than Fred I've ever literally seen start to fall asleep in the middle of a sentence. Almost, it's like anyway, I'm just gonna. <laughs> <laughs> now, my my memory of Charles and I rooming together. We had an Airbnb. Was it, we both had like Theraguns, <laughs> and after <laughs> we were both after the round, I think, or even after dinner one night, the two of us were sitting around going. <laughs> Theragunning and doing our neuropeak pro <laughs> That's breathing. Right. We did. We did the theragunning, and then in the morning, both of us were doing our breathing. And then Charlie, when I was over, said to me, I don't think you're. I think you're making some unnecessary noises. I wasn't. I think I wasn't I think doing you might it be right. Trying too hard. That's right. I was you trying know, to be perfect. So just on that note, with the NeuroPeak Pro stuff, like there is something called over breathing. Yeah. You, you you can do that, right? And, and so you've got to find this really nice balance, which you know is why doing it with with us or with their coaching uh, can be so valuable because you know it, it, there is kind of a, a little bit of a there's a science but also a, a small art to it as well which you got to find that that really nice kind of middle point where you can really dial that breathing in so it was great to be able to see that with Howard do you want to jump in with your uh, breathing question now and then we'll get to the Canadian am in a second or the yeah, Ontario well, amateur yeah I wanted to ask you Charles about hmm. The whole thing about breathing, I mean, you were on the podcast uh, last year and you talked about breathing and I wrote a blog about it and it was interesting. I got some questions and it was like people thought that they had to actually think about their breathing and whether they were in essence doing it right. Well, listen, go ahead. Go for it. No, no. Well, I, I guess it depends on what the purpose of the breathing is. So, you know, in in psychology, there's kind of these two general realms that we talk about in terms of control psychology versus acceptance psychology. And I think, you know, your your blog kind of addressed this a little bit because it depends if you're going down the acceptance route, which is more on the meditation, awareness, engaging in the moment side of things. You're specifically not trying to control it. You're specifically not trying to change it. There is no such thing as doing it right or wrong. It's purely just about whether you put your attention on it. Okay, And so it's more of a, a, an awareness and a focusing exercise in that way. In contrast, the NeuroPeak Pro stuff is very much firmly in the control camp where, yes, there is a right way to do it. There is a specific way to do it. And, you know, if you train hard enough, theoretically, you shouldn't have to think about it. But I always kind of go back to that story that where I used it in the Canadian Mid-Am last year, where it becomes a skill and a tool that you can kind of fall back on. So I, I can, you know, further illustrate those those ideas if you'd like. But I, I thought we'd start there in, in, in categorizing what kind of breathing we're talking about and how we're using it, whether it's in the acceptance school or whether it's in the control school. Well, I think that's that's really helpful about the acceptance thing. And, and you know, I would say to people who are listening, that's where you want to be on the golf course. So you're just allowing it. that, And they say it's a focus of attention. But the piece I wanted to ask you was, and specifically of your experience with focusing on your breathing in the Canadian Am, 
<laughs> is is it kind of between shots? You use it to sort of settle yourself down if you start to think. I'll just focus on my breathing. Or, in fact, are you taking it even into, say, pre-shot process? And as you're setting up over the ball, I mean, I mean the, the old joke for some people is, you know, someone's over the ball, you, you can see it coming, right? Do you inhale or exhale mm-hmm. on your backswing? That's right. So, yeah, I just want to get a sense of what, how much attention are you paying to your breathing? Yeah, so um, the short answer is a lot. Uh in a meditative sense, when I'm doing it more just to kind of create awareness and sit, being centered in the moment and kind of coming back to the moment and being accepting of thoughts coming and going. So not so much trying to eliminate or block them out, but more just creating an awareness of, okay, I'm breathing, I'm thinking, I'm doing all these things and they're all kind of happening together. So I'm not get, get too focused on one piece. But honestly, for me, I use the breathing probably more in the control realm than in the acceptance realm um, because of the the work that I've done with NeuroPeak Pro. So um, in terms of functionally, how I use it on the golf course in and around my routine, so around putting, uh, I use it a lot. And actually, NeuroPeak talks about this within their app as part of the breathing belt. But there's some times in golf where we put ourselves in stress positions. So for example, sitting crunching down to read a putt. Mm -hmm is actually a a stress position and it creates a lot of strain on the body and so your heart rate changes and your blood pressure changes and all this kind of stuff changes and so they talk about if you're old you stand up you might (laughs) that's right that's right we don't crouch as much as you do Charles trust me they uh, they, (laughs) they they talk about in that in that moment being able to use a breath or two of the structure that 4141 diaphragmatic resonance structure Uh, diaphragmatic just meaning belly breathing uh, deep deep breathing that way using that structure specifically to help activate the parasympathetic nervous system which is the calm rest and relaxation side of things whereas when you're in that crouch position you get into a stress into a a fight or flight um, sympathetic arousal activation and so doing that breathing in that quick moment can help your brain to just kind of calm back down so that you can be ready to hit that putt so in my putting routine yes i i very much especially after i've been reading a putt if i've been down for a while i'll just use a little bit of breathing here and there to uh to do into that in my full swing same kind of thing to a lesser extent where i might uh, have a breath just kind of walking into it just to establish that nice smooth rhythm but it is very much again in the control realm of i'm trying to breathe slowly and deeply in the structure of the NeuroPeak stuff. Again, that's separate from what I would have been doing in terms of some of the, the meditative kind of engagement in the moment pieces that we can talk about in the acceptance realm. So I know you've got a follow-up, Tim. Yeah, and that is that there's a lot of attention paid in, um, in fitness uh, and to some degree in golf around whether it's an inhale or an exhale. So in uh, in the gym, for example, if you say you're working with a weight, you know, inhale and then... Exhale when you when you explode on the effort so, side, yeah, on the effort side. So would it be the same way? I mean, if you take that to golf, should we be inhaling on our backswings and exhaling on our downswings? Theoretically, yes, because your heart rate is actually changing as you inhale and exhale. Right, your your heart rate is accelerating as you inhale and decelerating as you exhale. So yeah, theoretically on an exhale, you would swing faster <laughs> than on an inhale on a, on a, on a, uh, on an inhale, you might theoretically, or sorry, on an, uh, I'd have to kind of go back and double check that, but yeah, there, there's a balancing act there. What I'll say is this, if you're thinking about your breathing while you're hitting a golf shot, <laughs> you've got other problems. Thank you. No, I just love the fact that a bunch of swing thoughts, the STD is going to be like, wait a second. Should I? Okay, now I'm going to be, I am so fucked up right now. Um, but I want to just quickly, before we leave breathing and talk about preparation, you know, the, the meditative style of breathing versus this, this, this idea of precision breathing, which is where NeuroPeak has you know, led us to. I've really noticed a difference because I had meditated for a long time and still do. But when I do, like I did a, a 15 minute training session just a couple of days ago. And I just noticed that even though it's purposeful and precision in terms of the cadence, the four one, basically in for four, hold for one, out for four. I do find, and I wonder about YouTube, I find that even though it's purposeful, there is a meditative feeling I get that when I'm on the golf course and recall that training, it can calm me down, whatever the situation is. And it's a very subtle, like in between shots. Sometimes if I notice I'm a bit uptight or walking quickly, 
I guess my question to both of you is, do you both find that it can give you some of that meditative feeling, even though it's a precision style of breathing? I'll, I'll go. I use it in the same way you do, Howard, on the, on the golf course. When I find myself... Uh, feeling some anxiety about a shot or a, a possible outcome. And I'll just focus on particularly what Charles just said, diaphragmatic belly breathing. And mm-hmm. I'll just feel that expansion. And that just that focus there, that one-minded focus on that helps calm me down. And it just helps, helps chill me out. Um, yeah, that's my experience. Charles? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's a couple of great points to it. So, so number one, um, when you think about meditation and doing a, a breathing meditation for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, it really is a focusing exercise, which is, you know, as Tim said, you're trying to put your focus on one thing, you're kind of one-minded. You put your focus on one thing, which is your breathing, which is happening in the present. And then when your mind wanders, which it does, which it's kind of evolutionarily programmed to do, you have to realize that's happened and bring it back. And by the way, this is why NeuroPeaks neurofeedback training is like super advanced meditation because it does that with technology, but that's a whole other ball game to get into. So there is a, a, a focusing component of doing the NeuroPeak Pro breathing for 10 or 15 minutes because again, your mind's going to wander and you have to bring it back. So there is that kind of singular focus that's built into it. So in that way, it kind of becomes that meditative focusing exercise. There's some really cool questions and debates coming out. I haven't seen the study yet, but I know people are talking about doing it. Basically comparing whether it's actually the breathing component of meditation as opposed to the focusing component that actually has the benefits. Mm -hmm. And, And so there are, for example, other things you can do, other exercises you can do to be singularly minded or to be focused in the moment other than breathing. So there are other kind of meditation exercises you can do that way. And there's some debate in the in the academic community right now that that's saying like if we take two groups of meditation and we say one does purely non-breathing meditation exercises you know a, a classic one is like write the numbers from one to a thousand it takes a lot of focus and discipline to do that and then we compare people who just do breathing meditation a slow rhythmic breathing meditation even though they're not controlling it it tends to create slow belly breathing as an association and we compare and contrast these two what actually is the difference the theory that's kind of being pushed right now is actually there would be a significant difference in the impact on focus and improvement for the breathing as composed as compared to the non-breathing meditation so well you make this i think a really good point because again having both of us having you know pretty experienced meditators regularly doing it what i have found and i was i want to start to wrap the uh, breathing part up in a second but what i have found is using the neuropeak app i the one i focus the one i use mostly tim is the the ball the the I don't even know how to describe it. It's just basically you're following a ball up and down. Uh, the spacer. Yeah, or, something like that. Yeah, but the but breathing training, yeah. The breathing, it's one of the training protocols, but it's the one I use the most. And one of the reasons I do is because in 15 minutes, I get bored, but what it, it's because it is, it's a bit, it can be a bit tedious, but what I have found is that that's why I find it has a bit of a meditative vibe to it because as my mind wanders, I'm always brought back to, to watching that ball, to focusing on the ball going up for four, pausing for one. And in fact, I turned on the um it's got a vibration a vibrating uh component and a noise so that i can do it closing my eyes and then when i start to wander i come back to the focus on that particular animated ball breathing i guess my point is i think with this technology we're getting a little bit of both you're, you're getting the diaphragmatic calmness that does wonders for your nervous system but also you're kind of learning and training to bring the focus back to the present tense. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's exactly the way I kind of talk to my clients about it is, you know, I don't want to get people confused because they're, they, they're theoretically different kind of schools of psychology in terms sure. of acceptance versus control. But, you know, it does kind of tap into both in, in that kind of nice way. And, and so I think that's why they, they've had so much success with their athletes is because that base of the breathing is so powerful for calming the nervous system down, for which allows for better focus and doing all these kinds of wonderful things with that kind of added level of, of that dealing with your focus over time. And, and as you said, sometimes dealing with that feeling of boredom 
boredom and, and focusing through it, right? So there, there is a, a really fascinating kind of multifaceted component to it. Well, the thing that also is interesting you're saying about, you know, what's the greater benefit, uh, breathing or some other kind of meditation? To me, again, yes, it comes, it's, it always starts with awareness. What am I paying attention to? Am I thinking about closing this score? Am I thinking I could miss this putt? Or am I in my process? Charles, do you also work with your clients around things like, say, let's say they just three-putted, instead of like staring a hole in their shoes and telling them how much they suck as a putter, is to say, look at the trees, or, or listen to the birds, or feel the wind on your face, or as you walk, feel your feel your feet on the ground. Maybe flex your abs a bit up and down. To me, that type of thing is similar to breathing in terms of it puts my awareness on my body, which is always in the present moment. Yeah, so again, that would be the, the theoretical test that they would want to do is, you know, putting your attention on your body and on other things that are happening in the moment. Is that as effective as if that person did breathing in that moment? Right. So that's a theoretical test. So the short answer to your question is I do do that with my clients to help them do those kinds of things, but they have to acknowledge and accept the thought first. And, and so the, the, the metaphor I like to use is that you can imagine that your brain can text you or your mind can text you. And so you have to acknowledge that your mind just sent you a text that mm-hmm. I suck at putting. <laughs> That's right. I'm sorry. Did you see? Were you reading my texts from Monday? Yeah. How dare you? So you have to acknowledge that, right? You, you don't, you don't want to use the grounding in the present moment to block out those thoughts and yeah, say, hey, exactly. that, that didn't happen because that it, it just is disingenuous. It, it mm. means that that thought is, is well, bad. Well, your brain will reject it as bullshit. It'll say, no, no, that's, that's, not, a tr- that's not true. You're ignoring it. Yeah, exactly. And, and so you, you have to say, okay, yep, my mind just sent me a, a thought that I suck at putting. The mind's job is to solve problems. So it's trying to send you that thought to motivate you to go work on your putting and get better. Well, that's great, but that's not going to do anything for you in the middle of a round, right? So what we need to do is acknowledge that thought, allow it to just kind of hang out there. As I say in the cell phone metaphor, you know, old school psychology says, get into a text conversation kind of prove to yourself that you don't suck and you can go back and forth and that takes a lot of effort new school psychology in terms of acceptance stuff that you're talking about tim is to just say okay thanks for that thought brain i appreciate that i don't have to delete it i don't have to text back i'm just going to read it put my phone down that that thought is still there now i'm going to come back and re-engage with the moment whether i do that through breathing or whether i do that through looking at trees or anything else that way now i've come back to the moment i've realized that that thought that i had isn't the entire experience. It's one little part of the experience that I'm in right now. And that helps me to slowly shift my focus back to that next golf shot that I've got to hit so that I can be fully engaged with it and not lingering uh, some portion of my focus on that thought. Um, that's great. I'm glad we talked about that because uh, all three of us have been using the uh, precision breathing now. You've been using it for a few years, Tim and I, for a few months. And um, yeah, it's been it's been a very interesting uh, evolution of sort of a meditative protocol. Let's talk a little bit about our conversation yesterday. I hadn't talked to Charlie in a couple of weeks, I guess, or a week or so. And I called up and I said, so what are you working on? What's next for you? And I um, I want to just recreate part of this, which is your, your, your next big event, as you mentioned, is the Ontario Amateur. And it's at a golf course uh, that you're very familiar with. I would say semi familiar with. with right yeah it, it's it's Scarborough Scarborough in the, okay. in the GTA here so it's it's a classic golf course I think it's one of the only Tillinghouse designs in Canada so it's it's a really unique cool old golf course right and 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 I think it would be instructive or informative for people to know Maybe that both part, yeah all that there's a better word that I I keep but anyway Daddy's tired um so. I think it would be interesting for people to know that even at, not even, but especially at your level, at the level you want to compete at, because I said to you, and you said, oh, I've been doing a lot of preparation. I'm like, okay, well, what would that entail? So why don't I, why don't you answer the question, uh, what, what does getting ready for a tournament entail with you? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, you know, the standard kind of ones, again, I always look at the game as being kind of into four pillars, right? Mental, physical, technical, tactical. The one that we're going to go into mostly today is tactical, which is, you know, kind of putting together a game plan for a new course. There are the standard ones of my physical preparation, like, you know, doing my stretching and my breathing and, and, 
uh, you know, taking care of my wrist because I've got a wrist injury right now. This mm-hmm. is those kinds of standard kind of physical things, right? Eating well, getting good sleep, all that kind of stuff. Uh, my mental prep in terms of, again, the breathing, the, the focusing, all those kind of standard pieces that are just built into my habits and my routines. But what's unique and different about this is obviously the golf course. And, and so that's where the kind of tactical and technical parts of the game come in a little bit. So what I do is in preparation for a golf course, I really try and go through and, and look at different ways to play it. And I use Google Earth to do this, and I do this with my clients all the time. And we go through and use Google Earth, and we use our dispersion. So you can use PGA Tour data if you don't have your own dispersion. But with my clients, we use shot by shots. We have our rough dispersion for our different clubs where we can say, okay, you know, from 150 yards, I hit it roughly this far offline on average, those kinds of things. And I go and I start to trace out the golf course with, with Google Earth. And I start to look at and say, okay, you know, if I hit driver this far, how wide is this area? Is it wide enough that I can hit driver in there and feel very comfortable with it? What does that leave me in? What are some alternatives? And and this is really important at Scarborough because there's, I don't know, four or five different holes that are somewhere between 270 and 330 yards. So they're kind of quote unquote drivable. And they, they, they're really fascinating because some of them are kind of worth it. And, and some of them may or may not be depending on how risky you want to get. And on a large part, actually, depending on where the pin is, too. What this does is it starts to create a risk-reward game plan that I can base off of math, that I can base off of strokes gained. And I can say, you know what? Based on strokes gained, these are the different uh, kind of ideas that I can kind of take to this golf course or to this hole and really start to break down and say, okay, how do I think about this? What are these different game plans that I can have in place? And then how do I then translate that into my preparation the week before? So I can, you know, I don't know where you want me to go with this. Howard. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit there because and, and, and I, I, I've already figured out a way to, you know, extrapolate this to the average player. And we can get to that example in a second. But you and I talked about some of the shorter par fours. And of course, most people look at a 300 yard par four as a drivable opportunity. But I what I like about what we talked about yesterday is you're like, OK, here are the strokes gained for 60 to 80 yard shots. You know, here's what happens if I go for it and miss etc and excuse me yeah the average person listening may go well that seems a bit i don't know aggressive for just going out with my buddies but what i want you to sort of talk a little bit about and i want people to see that at a higher level there's a plan and a sort of and again decade does this very well you know the uh the driving tree the decision tree on when to hit driver and they would say send it as much as you can, but we talked about yesterday on some of these shorter par fours, you're looking to have 40 and 50 yard shots in. Yeah, so the, the seventh hole at Scarborough, I think, is is a perfect kind of decision making challenge. Um, there's OB right. There's a clump of trees short left. And the green is pretty narrow and surrounded by bunkers. The green is also open in the front. And the fairway narrows in and about 230, 240 yards. The hole is 275 yards. So, you know, the longer players will be hitting like three woods and some of them will be driving it with like two irons and stuff because it's just crazy how far some of the kids hit it these days. So, you know, you've got to go through and make a decision and say, okay, what's going to happen in these different scenarios? So, yes, I I drive the ball very, very straight. That's one of my major strengths. I really try and and hit it straight and keep it under control. So you think it would be obvious that I should go for this green. But, you know, knowing that there's OB right means I need to favor the left-hand side. And if I favor the left-hand side and I hit one a little further left, I'm in those trees. Well, listen, if I'm in those trees, the way the bunker is guarded, the way the bunkers guard the green, the way that green is pretty tight and narrow, especially if the pin's on the left side, I'm struggling to make a par from over there, right? Like, you know, I can maybe get something into the greenside bunker. If I get really lucky or hit a really great shot, I can get on the green, but it's not going to be close. And if I hit that greenside bunker, you know, I'm kind of 50, 50 for making a par from there. Right. So yeah, I might be able to drive the green one or two of the days and, and make an easy birdie, but there's another day or two where I might get unlucky and end up in a bad spot in the trees and make a bogey or worse. And so without going into the strokes gained, you know, Howard, one of the things I just get my, my clients to do is, is just kind of, you know, think about if you played it 10, 10 balls mm-hmm. from each different spot, you know, if you hit 10 drivers and you hit 10 like layups and just kind of roughly calculate what you think your average score would be. And that's just an interesting hypothetical. People rarely go through it all the way through, but they just start to kind of think and go, ooh, you know, which of these is, is, is going to be a little bit easier, I guess, is the, the way to, to look at it. And so um, it, it, 
helps people to go through and kind of make those decisions rather than just thinking emotionally in the moment of what I want to do, finding that balance of uh, logic and preparation to be able to say, hey, this is, I think, the right thing to do from the mathematical perspective. And then you can kind of debate whether we want to give into some of the emotions sometimes, as you and I were talking about the other day in terms of the hot hand idea and, and, and some of that kind of stuff. So there's there's a different kind of higher order stuff that way. But having a baseline game plan in place where you can say, this is what I'm going to do that's going to mathematically give me the best chance of shooting right. the lowest score on average. Is, well, a, and, is a really good starting and, point. And before I hand it over to Timmy, but what you said about making an emotional decision based on that day, whether you're playing in a tournament or with your buddies, you know, you come to the seventh hole and if you already don't have kind of a, an, a vibe of what you would do to get yourself the best score, then you're making a decision at that moment based on how the first few holes went, how your friends are doing, etc. Madness. Start breathing. Tim? <laughs> well, let me, let me just throw one thing in, Tim, before you jump in there. And until recently, Howard, psychology would have said totally ignore what has happened earlier in the round, good right. or bad. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because the idea was, you know, the hot hand doesn't exist. Right. They prove this in basketball. It's like, you know, it, if you make two or three shots in a row, that doesn't make you more likely to make your next one or not. OK. And so they, they said the hot hand doesn't exist. It's a it's a it's a fallacy. It's a, an illusion. But there was some research research that came out and actually proved that it does exist. And so now there's this open debate about saying, I actually maybe should consider whether I'm playing well or not well that day to influence my decision making, as opposed to looking at it the way a robot might make. Mm-hmm. So it's a fascinating new area to kind of really throw things more difficult, because before it was really easy. You know, in, in decade terms, it was totally ignore. It doesn't matter what you've done previously in that round. The math is the math. Use the math every time and be a robot. And, you know, that's very powerful, but maybe it's not totally the best way to do based on the most current research. So, sorry, Tim, I, I just had to No worries, that that's in. exactly what it needs to be. And it makes so much sense to come to uh, a tournament of consequence and have a game plan. It just, it's used a phrase that Howard uses a lot, it, it lowers the, the thermostat. You know, I get there, I've already decided, so it kind of doesn't matter, but... It's been interesting. Howard and I have noticed a couple times this year in some of the tournaments, um, kind of question the decisions that players made, such as Cam Smith in the Players' Championship. So he hit driver there on the 18th. He's got, you know, he's got, I forget what his lead was, but uh, he still had work to do. So he hits driver. He didn't really seem to need driver. Mm-hmm. And then, because he put it in the trees, rather than pitch out... He seemed to try to take it forward, and he put it in the water, leaving himself. So, anyways, the what I'm getting to is, how do you strike that balance between here's the math, here's my preparation, and this is what I feel sort of inspired to do? And yes, and maybe I do have a hot hand going. How do you strike that balance? The short answer is, it's incredibly hard. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because as it turns out, we are human beings. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Oh, there's guys, that. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know if Howard counts, but, yeah, but yeah. Tim Thank and I you. are at least human you know, Very good. Very good humans. <laughs> and w- what that means is we're imperfect. We're emotional creatures. You know, I, again, this this book that I keep coming back to that Howard and I have been talking about called Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, Daniel Kahneman? Kahneman, exactly. Yeah. Just an amazing, amazing book that talks about all the psychological biases that we have. And what they talk about is, for example, how a reference point that we have in mind and golf does this really really easily because par becomes the reference point mm-hmm. as we start to approach this refer point reference point our psychology changes and we become either risk seeking or risk averse and this is all happening kind of almost subconsciously and the best way i can give you the example of let's say you know that seventh hole at scarborough if it's a 275 yard par three everybody hits driver Nobody lays up unless they're crazy, crazy intense, right? Mm-hmm. But if you make it a par four, people will at least consider laying up, even though the hole hasn't changed. It's just the way you frame the hole as a par three or as a par four that will make people either more risk-seeking, hitting the driver, or risk-averse, laying up. And, and so the challenge is, is when people get into difficult situations, when we get into thinking that we're in a losing situation, we become very risk-seeking. And so for whatever reason, chances are Cam's mind in that second shot on the Players' Championship went into a risk-seeking mode. 
And listen, there's a debate, an active debate I'm having with a couple of, of really, really smart people about whether golf pros are actually naturally risk seeking or naturally risk averse. And so there's there's some interesting research that we're trying to do to kind of figure that out. But for whatever reason, Cam's mind went automatically to being risk seeking, probably because he felt like he needed to do something to win the tournament. And if he didn't do that, he was going to lose it and would feel bad from that kind of loss aversion of, oh, I had the, ch- that I had right. the chance to win and I you know, didn't pull off the shot and didn't. So loss aversion is a very, very powerful decision-making effector. And, you know, you talk about this, this is why players have caddies. <laughs> you know, there was a great example of it with Rory McIlroy in the uh, U.S. Open where he hit a shot into a bad spot. I think it was the first round. And he was looking at these two crazy shots. One of them was like a high cut wood out of the rough around some stuff over water. Another one was like this low rising punch hook. Again, over rough, over water, just being ridiculous. And his caddy, uh, I think it was Harry Diamond who came back that week, came over to him and just said, dude, like the fairway's right there. Here's the wedge. Chip That's out. right. What are you, <laughs> yeah. what are you, why are you even looking at these different things? And it's because, you know, the caddy is removed from that emotional decision-making process so that it's much, much easier for them to do that. So the short answer for humans to take that step back, that is hard. Well, it's hard for me to relate to, too. As golf spiritual leader, I've ascended past this, all this common nonsense. But, you know, it's funny because Henrik, my, uh, my, my, my spiritual leader, my Yoda, always says that. You know, he talked to me a long time ago about being your own player one is Howard, player two is your caddy and you have to be a good caddy to yourself i mean again decade helps and all the stuff we talk about helps knowing in in terms of the decisions to make but before we let you go and and i'll i'll do my post round uh stuff with timmy because we've already kept you too long but here's the thing for the average player i had this come up with the conversation with our friend brooke benny he was a really fine guy he trains he's a he's i worked with tim at uh, guelph and he's been helping me with tpi uh training for the last six months but he's a nice player and he had a good round the other day where he was going well and on a 400 yard par four he made a big number and i said to him you know let's talk about that hole kind of in the same way that we're talking about this hole at scarborough is it risk reward should i hit driver whatever but the average person gets up to a a par four and as soon as there's a four in it as soon as the number clicks over to four, like if it was 395, sometimes I think psychologically the four in the par four leads us to think we have to hit driver. Now, the tournaments that we play in uh, often have pin sheets. So one of the first things I'll do, depending on the length of the holes, I'll see where the flag is. Because if it's at the front of the green, well, now it's not 410. It's more like 390. The point I'm getting at is for the average player like Brooke, who's about a 10 or an 8 or a 12, whatever he is, there's a there's a, an argument to be made to on difficult par fours to to piece them out. You don't. I know it seems simple to say you don't need to hit driver, but you can look at the hole as a four and a half, as more like a par five. If it's a difficult hole at your golf course, what would you say about the average player looking at their own course, seeing where those big the number one handicap, the number four handicap, the long par fours, the difficult par threes. What about a similar approach for them? So I think, you know, I think there's there's some really interesting pieces to it. And this is a, a debate I've been having kind of recently because the challenge is we do need to find that balance. So I think of par, I think where I'm going with all this is I think of par as a dynamic thing it's not set for the hole and so what i'd say is you know to to brooke is if he hits it in the trees off of that that par four all of a sudden then it's a par five that's right right it's a changing whereas on the flip side if i'm playing a par five and i smash it up close to the green in two now it's a par four based on whether we're trying to make somebody more risk seeking or risk averse Mm mm-hmm and having that kind of constant debate, and this is one of the things that Kahneman talks about in Thinking Fast and Slow, is we need to basically try and stimulate what they call system two, which is our slow, logical, rational part of our brain, which unfortunately is quite lazy. So we don't, because it uses a lot of resources, so we don't want to use it. So we've got to kind of force it in there through different questions and cues and stuff like that. But the idea of being able to kind of shift par, I think, is, is a really interesting one where players can start to shift their risk appetite based on that. But I think, you know, here's the, the question, because I, I thought, you know what, let's just make par higher. 
and let's make people's decision making easier where mm-hmm. we just say okay you know if you're a 10 handicap let's make your par 85 or something like that right and just make life easier but here's the thing remember pga tour players putt better for birdie sorry putt better for par than they do for birdie that's and right that's because of loss aversion and loss aversion when they're putting for par actually improves performance so what this means is when we get pga tour players at least into a risk seeking attitude as opposed to a risk averse attitude they actually perform better and so there's a debate about are there times where we should challenge people to be risk seeking versus risk averse and so i don't right. think it's so simple as to just say hey turn it into a par five I think it's more of a dynamic piece where you can say, okay, if you're in trouble, yes, now it becomes a par five or a par six. So they don't try and hit that ridiculous recovery shot out of trouble. And they just pitch out sideways and try and make that bogey and kind of go from there. So that, I guess, is a long, long way of saying we're still working on it. Listen, man, um, always great catching up with you. Uh, EclipsePerformance.ca. If you want to find out more on what Chuckles, uh, Chuck, sorry, Dr. Charles is up to, I was going to call you Chuckles, but that's only for private times. Ch- Chuckles, Chuckles is, uh, yeah, I've um, been called worse things. No, I know. Charlie Fitz, Charlie Fitz, Tim, an official uh, Swing Thoughts Hall of Famer. He's putting up impressive numbers. Um, if we had a Hall of Fame, you'd be, definitely be a not first ballot. Uh, do you have any final thoughts for uh, Fitzsimmons before we let him go, or is this, uh, should I play him out? Tim's turned his microphone off. <laughs> Tim's just said, that's enough. I've Tim, your enough. microphone you're, is you're, off. You're mute. You're unmuted. The old Zoom thing. Hey, you're unmuted. My gosh. Um, no, I. it'll be interesting. Like, this is a big deal, this Canadian AM for you. I mean... No, this is the Ontario get, AM. Well... Okay, whatever tournament you're freaking playing in, okay? My God, I'm just making a mess of this hole. <laughs> you're just like everybody else, whether you're trying to break 100, 90, 80, is that there's a story there, there's a thing that you want, but you're going to have to keep that in some in balance, right? Oh, yeah, right. I, I want to qualify, but i got to get business done first. So, you know, even players at your level, you're, you're, it's all relative, right? You just got to put the work in and, and see how it shakes out and, and engage it the best you can in, in each shot and, you know, hope that the golf gods go your way. Yeah, man. Well, listen, I wish you nothing but the best. Uh, when does that start? Next week? Next week. Next Tuesday. Okay. Well, I'm going to catch up with you because uh, I wanted to chat with you before the Ontario Senior Am, which... Uh, you know, I've got plans for that. I got to work that. I got to work that golf course. Uh, Charlie Fitz, thanks, my brother. Thank thanks, you, guys. Really boy. appreciate it as always. Yeah, I appreciate you. I appreciate. I love how he's got all this golf Canada shit behind him on the uh, thing. That's so. I love the reason he does that is when he's working with his clients. He's like, dudes, do you know when I'm talking to you, I'm telling you for a reason. I'm Charlie Fitz. I got cred. I got super cred. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, guys. See you. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Charlie's got to go plug in his uh, Tesla. <laughs> he's got, yeah, so he's got Golf Canada, uh, you know, awards and medals and stuff. And, and I got this picture of, of of me watching Tiger Woods play. Yeah. And I got all my radio station bullshit in the back. Uh, Humble and Fred stuff. Um, hey, buddy. You didn't, you didn't, you know, you're doing just fine. Thanks. No, I, I, um, I lost focus there. I was trying no, to find right. a scorecard for Blue Springs, and that's all right. So, um, I don't I totally, off. I don't totally agree with everything uh, toward the end that Charlie said. I just didn't want to get into a debate with him. I, I just think because for an average player. Uh, the hot hand doesn't really apply. Although I guess, you know, for someone you can have a good round going. I just think when you get to your golf course, whenever you're going to play next, or you get to a golf course, that considering your handicap against the toughest holes on the course is a worthwhile exercise, I think, because, you know, when I take people to Glen Karen, um, there's a 400 and... 55 or 60 yard par four the sixth hole and when the pins at the back this is not the gold tees this is the blue tees so when i when i'm playing five i look it over and i see where the flag is because when it's at the back of that green a blue flag on that hole it's nearly 480 yards so yeah i mean if i hit my good drive i'm gonna have a couple hundred yards to the hole 190 or 185 to the middle of the green but the average player 
that you've got to look at that hole like it's a par five mm-hmm. because it is. And here's the thing at Glencairn. The quirk is two holes later on the eighth hole. It's a 460 yard par five. So the way oftentimes at our course, we'll look at those two holes is you want to make four or five on them. And it doesn't really matter what order that happens. You know, so if you make your five on the par four, you hope to make your four on the short par five. You follow me? Yep. But even when Charlie and I got into this yesterday, like I've played, you know, some of the tournaments I play and they have, you know, with when I play with the kids for sure, like uh, whatever hole that is at St. Thomas is 230 for me. It's a par three. If I played there four rounds and I and I was like one or even two over for that for that for that stretch that's i'm probably going to be okay in terms of strokes gained against the field because making a four there and a 230 yard par four or par three i should say that's not a bad score you know i think what i'm trying to get at is when amateurs and he's he's an elite amateur when the rest of us when we force things like thinking you need to par that 460 yard par four it's just a number five on that hole is a good score for most of the guys that will play there today i i I agree with you i'm gonna start with the story on this part i remember when devil's pulpit first opened and the scorecard came out and people thought it made a mistake because there was no par for any of the holes it was just it was just yardages and the hole number and Ben Kern said that was by intention because according to Ben and I agree with him par is kind of arbitrary yeah someone has decided and it usually makes some sense that a hole is whether it's be you know 140 to 220 ish would be a par 3 right we we all get those things but at the end it doesn't really freaking matter it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter how many bogeys, birdies, or pars you made. Right. What ma- what matters is, if you're particularly, if you're competing, is you add up your score at the end of the end of the round, and the person with the lowest score wins. So, I, for, for a lot of people, I just say, just let go of the idea of par. Yeah. I've talked about this innumerable times on the podcast. At Blue Springs, where I play, there's a couple holes that I basically say, I have played them to a personal par of of five, even though they're par fours, and uh, number eight would be one of those, and number ten. So oh, yeah. if I Num- make par number- in those, I consider that a birdie. But it doesn't. Again, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter at all. So I think that that yeah, I, I get where he's going with the you know you got the hot hand thing going, and uh, I, I really think it's just whatever <laughs> whatever's going to allow you to keep it in play and allows you to feel comfortable. Uh, and you can make your swing and because as soon as I think you start getting caught in a story I must make par here or I need to do this to stay at a certain score you're just layering in complications yeah well, no, I was going to say, especially uh, that that's a great analogy. Those holes at Blue Springs are very difficult par fours. Number 10 is like a par four and a half, if not more. Um, I know we've only got a couple more minutes left. And, I'd, actually uh, like to, I'd like to actually stay on 10 uh, and relate an experience I had there uh, today. So I'm getting ready for my senior club C this weekend. So I was out this morning for my, my Wednesday do sweep I blast around in a cart uh, thank you very much Greg Pacenti for that <laughs> but I I experimented on 10 I hit a hybrid hit it really solid and then I hit a driver and I got so the driver went down it hit pretty well too so it kind of went down the hill but was in the rough the hybrid left me in the fairway with 160 easy shot put it on the green ended up making a 4 the um, the wedge shot I tried to hit from the downhill lie bit in the rough ended up short, so yeah. I would have struggled to make make par there. And what I also did was I I went to the edge of the fairway and I used my rangefinder to go to the other side. And there's only 50 yards, and it kind of proved to myself hybrid is the play here for me yeah. because I can just free swing it, and I know it's going to be a, it's going to land on terra firma, and if I let's say I'm hitting into a headwind, maybe I got a layup. Hey, that's fine. At least I'm likely to make that five, which is okay, and not make the double. So, yeah, to me, that's 
kind of how I'm trying to take some of this decade stuff in stuff that Charles talking about as being uh, tactical by well, I knowing mean, what you're dealing de- with. Decade would have us all hit driver on that hole, but that's not. That's again, decade. Uh, one of the not the, even though it's only fifty yards, that, it's not. It's for your, hazard to hazard. Well, yeah. Um, mainly because it's a pretty long par four. But I was going to say something about not everything about decade applies to every amateur listening. There's so much in it that's such a good place to start for people to think strategically and kind of some of the things that Charles was talking about. But it doesn't matter because it's what you feel comfortable. I mean, you know, I had a tournament Monday, and, and uh, I played a practice round Sunday, and the practice round to the the real round was a lot different. But one of the things that I took away from my poor play on Monday was a lot of indecision on my part. I mm. hadn't quite made enough of a decision on what I was going to hit on certain holes, and sure enough, on those holes, I was less than... You know, it was less than uh, the outcome I wanted. To your point about that, that, especially in preparation for a tournament at your home course, which I think is where we'll finish off today. You Just because you know your own course, you play it so much, I love what you've done there because at least with a hybrid, and again, talk about lowering your internal thermostat. I say this all the time. If I give you a 7-iron, which is most people's favorite club because it goes long-ish and it's easy to hit, but that's a lot different than giving you 3-wood from the middle of the fairway. That's why a lot of times when we lay up on a hole, it's some of the best swings we make because it's usually with a shorter iron. My point to you then is it doesn't matter if the math works. You'll make a lot less others because if you make five there, we've already established you lose nothing. You make four there, you're gaining a full stroke and a half on all the guys you're playing against. So the job is, and I don't want to say this to put any doubt in your mind, your job is not to make six. That's all you have to get away. If you hit three seven irons and made five, that's still better than hitting driver into the chaos that is that hole. Exactly, 100%. Just... We're both on the exact same wavelength. We are. Here. I'm not sure if that makes for a boring <laughs> podcast, but oh, we passed boring a long time ago. <laughs> no, when you're comfortable, yes, you swing. Yes, you can just swing so much easier. Yeah, uh, I don't have. I want to get into the round I played on Monday, but I will just say this: it was pretty funny because I was. Uh, was it a tournament? Yeah, yeah, it was a big tournament. The London Hunt inv- Invitational. It's a big. Tournament. Oh yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And it's a big tournament only in that, um, you know, these are invitationals that I want to win. Uh, two weeks or three weeks ago, I came in second at a similar, you know, prestigious style event. I'm sorry, I'm going to use that word. It's a big in- invitational. And I came second, so I thought, cool. Now my goal is to finish first in one of these, especially one they've been playing for 76 years. It's been won by everyone from Gary Cowan to all those guys, you know. And uh, I just didn't play very well, but part of it was, and I, I just offer this up to others, as a, is that I didn't have a very good pairing. The guy that I got paired with oh, yes. was just fucking annoying. I'm going to say it. He was just annoying from literally, <laughs> see, as I said to Fred, I was talking about it. I said, uh, here's how my day began. He began by saying, just so you know, I forgot my tooth and it went downhill from there. That's how the conversation started. I was like, what? And he uh, shot a million, which is no big deal. But it was like he double bogeyed the first four or five holes and basically just narrated his entire round from the very first moment. And I I was telling Charles about this yesterday and I kind of got sucked into it. This sort of it took a lot. of, And again, I know I'm supposed to be able to, you know, put it aside but I was definitely affected by it because it took oh, yeah. some energy. Every time I got in the cart, there was energy taken away having to mitigate this guy's sorrowful experience. And again, I'm, I was trying to be curious, not judgmental. I was trying to do that thing. But I was having trouble because judgmental was winning. <laughs> Just I, I fucking judgmental kept saying, this guy's a douchebag. Shut up. I was doing that thing where you're like, I take four clubs in my range finder. I'll walk from here. I was doing that all day. The guys, oh, you guys shared a cart? Oh, fuck yeah. 
And the other guys oh, in our yeah. group Ouch. who were just the nicest guys, they looked over to me after like, I don't know, the third hole and kind of went like, they shrugged their shoulders like, sorry, buddy. Big eye roll. Yeah, big eye yeah, roll. Sorry. Constantly. Now, it's not his fault oh. that I didn't have a, a good day, but it didn't help me. And it was another lesson to be learned. Like I, on the way home, I was like, okay, what do I take away from that? Well, maybe I could have been better handling that situation the fact that i three putted five times yeah that didn't help either um but i just didn't i I was just a little bit off in every area of my game and i don't know like some of that energy that i might have been using to be more in the moment and less you know really not sure what to do some of that was taken away by my playing partner i only offer this to you to everyone because you know when you look at your rounds there's a lot that goes into it you know especially in tournaments oh yeah totally so uh uh uh, commiserate my condolences uh i think we've all been there and it's it's odd because my experience in golf overwhelmingly and i think most people is is that most of the people you meet are nice people always play golf with and and you have a great time and shake hands they have a nice life you'll never see them again and you've had a great time but occasionally it gets weird uh my brother and i sean got paired with a guy who we called captain obvious uh, at Tarandawa. And he just kept saying all this stuff like that was like, oh, right. And, and my brother hit, hits a ball left of left into the woods. And the guy says, oh, you never find that. And finally, my brother goes, goes right. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, it's so hard. I remember, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, I promise I will. I remember playing with Mr. Barber, who was a, a, a guy who lived down the street. And my dad said, Whatever you do, watch the first tee shot and never watch another one again. Because he would set up to the ball, and then he would start to do this dance. (laughs) (laughs) And boom, the ball would go. And so it was like, you saw it the first time, that's it. Don't look again. And that's maybe what... Oh, I've done that so many times in golf. You're playing with someone who's annoying. Yeah. And while they're hitting, like, stare off into the woods and, and do, do your best in energy conservation. But did you have to spend a lot of time, like, tromping through woods oh, yeah. looking for golf balls <laughs> Well, that was the thing, too. Like, yeah, yeah first of all, my uh, energy drain. My buddy Paul always says to me, unless that he, – he told me this a long time ago. He said, stop. Don't watch other people hit. He said, watch where their ball yeah. goes. Be a good partner. He said, oh, you Fine. told me that. But he said, don't watch them swing. And I said, why is that, Hendo? And he said, because you don't want, you know, their swing, you know, infecting yours. And it can, especially if that person swings yep. in a weird way. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't know if I'm, you remember me telling you the story of, I can't remember if it was a qualifier. It was just in the last couple of years where I played with this guy who had a nickname for me. But the nickname changed every shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a qualifier last year. Nice guy. Really yes. good guy. And it's funny because this. because he his weirdness didn't take any energy away from me. I just found it amusing. And for people who don't remember the story, he just called me professor, commander, chief, doctor. Like, literally, he had one for almost, I go, oh, nice shot there, commander. Hey, good shot, doctor. Good shot, chief. Good shot. And it was just like, I found it hilarious. This guy on the one, two, third, fourth hole. Perfect example. He's already made a bunch of big numbers. And it's a, it's a, I can't remember. I guess it was the 10, 11, 12. If you know um, London Hunt, it's a short par four up and it's the, the green is up on a perch. So it's a short par four. I'd already planned to hit four iron. So I hit four iron and he hit driver. The other two gentlemen in my group all hit hybrids or whatever. Because you could just lay it up. And I had like 130 yards in. He hits driver. And we all clearly see it bounce a couple times and then into the shit, into a hazard. But we spent quite a while looking for this ball, even though as soon as you got up there, it's like one of those ones where you're like, first of all, you don't want to find it. There's no chance of finding it. And if I hit four iron, he's looking in a similar area. He was 50 yards ahead of me. And we all saw. So we spent all this time and energy. And he kept saying, I don't understand it. I mean, I took something off my driver. And I was trying to be kind at that point. And I said, "Uh, sir, I hit four iron. I'm right there. 
So chances are, I said, that's a lot of club. And, and you hit it well. He said, I, I, I just, I took something off. And anyway, the whole story was so aggravating to me. But, the, you know, it took me, it took, it take, again, it takes energy to go back to, okay, what do I want to do here? So I'm just going to, my final thoughts on this. I, I, um, I have this coaching protocol that I, I've been using. And, 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 and it, it talks about common things that can blindside you if you're not prepared. So I'll leave you with these. Here are the ones that uh, the weather changes in the middle of a round. You come up to a hole and there's a couple groups waiting there. Your partner is moody, chatty, or annoys you. That's one of them. So I, I know that this isn't unique to me. That we've all had this. And now I have it as an experience when I, if it happens again, I know what I'll do. I have, a, I have at least taken that experience away from this. That it I, doesn't involve murder or anything? It does involve punching him in the nose. Like, I just wasn't ready for it because of what you said. I play so many of these events, and universally, it's with great guys. Yep. Just, and the other two guys, if it had just been the three of us... I can't guarantee this, but I know I would have had a better round. I would I'll t- I'm, maybe not even score wise, but I would have had a better experience because when it was over at one point, um, he was saying, well, I'm just going to go home. I'm like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. I was just trying to be very quiet. You know, I'm, yeah, you probably had enough of a, but then he decided not to. I'm like, oh, Jesus. Now I got to sit with fucking dinner with this guy. Jesus, kill me. Anyway, so that's all I want to say. About that. Oh, it's so hard. You, you know, it is because there's your your energy. Basically, it's like you're playing defense, yeah, all the time and trying to. Okay, this doesn't bother me. It's bothering me. No, it doesn't bother. That's me. That's true. And then you have to get then you have to get back into your own shot. And it's so hard to shut all that down and to come back into your little quiety, nice little place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with a blanket and a bonnet yeah. and, and hit a shot. It's just so that is really hard. Yeah, and I and I wasn't really hitting it very well to start the round, like I'd say three or four or five holes before I kinda got my footing. And so I wasn't hitting it. And then I then I started to hit it like I do. And the first couple of drives that I actually connected with, he goes, "There you go!" Like, "Oh, what a good boy! You you made a nice thing." I'm like, "Oh, shut the fuck up!" You know, and just at that point, I was so annoyed by him. I'm like, you know. Anyway, uh, but that was my experience. Uh, moving on. Uh, good luck this weekend. Let's talk about you for the last couple of minutes here. I want to say, so where do you feel? So this is the senior. Uh, club championship. You are the A flight. Uh, def- you're the super senior defending champion. But uh, what are your goals? Do you want to win the whole thing this year? Is it possible? I would love to win, and I think that I've been playing some of my best golf in the last couple of weeks. Today, I had a really nice round. It was really fun. A really good scoring. I, I, I made every putt within four to five feet today good saves and that kind of thing and i'm just my i've just been letting myself in essence just swing for Mm -hmm. gosh sakes just like i'm not burdened with any kind of a swing thought i did start it was interesting i'll just be very brief um on the back nine i kind of thought i was like am i am i swinging too fast here because i've yanked a couple left here and and i just kind of got off no just swing pal just target swing at that and so, anyways, I'm making some really cool discoveries in my game that are connecting to my coaching and my own experience of my pain in the ass self. <laughs> so, I think, I think in terms of uh, my own transformational work, it's working very nice. But, yeah, I mean, I'd love to be in a position. I think that, um, you know, I, I could defend it. Yeah. Um, oh, easily. So, it'll be very interesting. If I'm, if I'm in the mix there... It'll be very interesting for me because I've never ha- been in this situation before to observe myself and see what's going on uh, about my nerves and and uh, the stories and all that kind of stuff. It'll be a, it'll be a hell of a challenge, but but well, I, I, fun. I I couldn't wish it. I, I here's the two things I would say. I wish I hope you do uh, defend obviously, but I hope you get into a position where you get to feel what it's like to be in the last couple of groups. You know, to yeah. have a chance to win the whole thing. But I would tell you, lastly, the, the second thing is this. And this is good advice, I think, for all of us. Have a plan. 
for when things will inevitably go south, because they will. And that could be on the first hole, first, second shot. I don't care. Have a plan, a, a, a real pathway to what you're going to do after mm-hmm. your first you know, shot that goes left. It's in a hazard because that's going to happen. But also, conversely, have a plan when you start off. I don't know, whatever that number is, one under through six, two, two over through nine. Have a plan for when you're like feeling it because that can also show up. And sometimes that's as hard to deal with as a poor start or a a middle three or four holes that don't go your way. Have a plan and and have a real clear idea. When you have a few, you know, great holes in a row and you're one under through six, when you get to that seventh tee, I always tell people, like, after a good stretch, really take your time, both after a bad hole and after a really good hole. Now, I think I told you the story. I was playing in Cherry Hill after I eagled a hole and I had like four holes to go. I went to my bag and I pretended to be looking for something like a piece of tape or something because I was so jazzed up about it that I knew I needed to distract myself for a couple of seconds and I just didn't want to run to the tee and hit it. So that was my plan. I would just say to you like, there's going to be both of those things show up. You're going to have a stretch of great holes and you're going to have one or two situations that will be, you know, and there'll be golf chaos. Oh, absolutely. I'll just relate to that with, I remember Zokel saying uh, years and years ago that his sort of mantra to himself is, don't get too high when it goes good and don't get too low. That's just right. Just try and keep it on, on an even keel. I wish you uh, all the guests, all the goodness, because you deserve it. You're a nice person. Thanks to uh, JW Apparel. Neuro Peak Pro, where you spent a lot. That was great, actually. All that talk about breathing, I enjoyed that. And of course, our well, great opportunity with a guy oh, like yeah. Charles. My goodness, especially somebody that plays at his level, and uh, always yeah. the tailor-made family of irons and drivers and golf balls. What are you doing with your game if you're not playing the equipment trusted by McElroy, Morikawa, O'Connor, and Golf Spiritual Leader? Until next time, we'll see you. Take care. Step inside, but you don't see too many faces.